Well, hopefully you have your Bibles open to 2 Samuel 6. And again, thank you for just allowing me to be here this weekend. I've had a blast getting to know you guys. I really have. Uh, it's been a lot of fun. I, I know I haven't met all of you yet, but I've met a good number of you. And you know what? I am so excited that I got to be with you guys with this group because what's crazy is I know so many of your parents. I know so many of your parents. I've, I've kind of met some of you guys and talked to some of you guys about that. Actually, I didn't, I didn't say hi yet to um, one of you. Your, your dad is Brinton Kwok. Is that? Tell your dad I said hi. All right. Someone told me that you were here and I was like, oh, I need to meet. I'll, we'll, we'll talk later. We'll talk later. Uh, so it's just, it's just kind of neat that there's so many connections in that way. And I really enjoyed getting to know some of you guys. Mason, Doug got an igloo that my kids uh, just had a blast, you know, playing it. He wasn't the only one, but I just want to, and Sarah, don't worry, Sarah, I didn't, I didn't forget you, but I just, you know, I met Mason today and I wanted to highlight that, you know, not favorites, but, you know, just, just trying to spread the love, all right, spread the love. Uh, but I, I really have just enjoyed being with you guys. So thanks for uh, welcoming my family. My kids love singing with you guys, and uh, they, we wanted to sit in the back, and they kept saying, no, sit in the front. I'm like, oh, gosh. So, uh, I mean, even pastors don't like sitting in the front sometimes. But, um, no, thank you for, for allowing us to be with you. Well, as we wrap up our time this weekend, uh, we want to focus again on who God is. And uh, my, my goal and my desire this weekend was to give you a bigger view of God than you came in with. And, you know, one, one pastor by the name of Sinclair Ferguson, he said that, that some people have this mistaken view of God, that he is sort of like uh, a dad who brings you to a toy store. How many of you guys like going to toy stores? Oh, you guys are in junior high, maybe not so much anymore. Besides, besides Harrison, I saw him raise his hand. Yeah. <laughs> but let's say that your dad brings you to a toy store and, or, you know, brings, brings his, his little kid to a toy store and walks around and says, tell me everything that you like. Just tell me what, what catches your eye. Tell me what, you know, what seems really interesting to you. What would you want, right? And so you walk through aisle by aisle and, you know, this kid says, oh, I want that. Oh, dad, that looks great. Oh, dad, that looks wonderful. Oh, please, that looks amazing. He's like, oh, yes, yes, that looks good. Oh, yeah, that looks fun. Oh, wow, that does look like a cool toy. At the end of it, he says, you can't have any of it. We're get going home. <laughs> and now some of you are like, that is my dad. He's cheap, <laughs> right? But, but, but some of us have this view of God that he's like that, that we live in this world with all these cool things around that all the world gets to enjoy. And we look at it and say, I'd like that. And God says, no, we're going home. And, and we sometimes think of God like that, that he's harsh, he's stingy, he holds back, he holds out on us. And we are kind of getting cheated out in life if we try to follow God. And so last night, maybe you're thinking, well, that kind of sounds like the God that you described yesterday. We, we, we saw God strike us a dead for touching the ark. That, I mean, I, I get it, I guess, but it's still just, it's still hard. I, it, it causes me to tremble. I, I'm, I'm kind of fearful of this God. And some of that is appropriate, but, but we stopped on a cliffhanger because that's not all that the Bible says about God. That's not all that 2 Samuel 6 says about God. We stopped on a cliffhanger. Uzzah was dead, David was afraid, and the ark was left at Obed-Edom's house. And so what happens? That's the cliffhanger. And I want to finish this morning with the rest of 2 Samuel 6. Now, let me ask you, did any of you read ahead to see what happened next? If you did, if you didn't, don't, don't do it now. But did any of you read ahead to see what happens next? Anybody? A couple people? A couple people? Okay. So you can't answer. You can't answer. What do you think happened next? Obed-Edom has the ark in his house. David is afraid. Throw out some guesses. What do you think happened next? What do you think, Caleb? Yeah, it happened 
Something bad happens to Obed-Edom? Yep. What else? Anybody else? Yeah, Mason. Someone will touch it or he will touch it. Yep, yep. Any other guesses? What would happen when someone touches it? Caden, uh, right? Yeah. Hmm. David will think it through and figure out a way to get it into Jerusalem. Elijah. David will take it back somewhere else. All good guesses. All good guesses. Let's read 2 Samuel 6, verses 9 to 11. Remember, Uzzah, dead. David, afraid. The ark is at Obed-Edom's household. We'll start in verse 9, so it kind of picks up from yesterday. 2 Samuel 6, verses 9 to 11. And David was afraid of the Lord that day. And he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David, but David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite three months. And the Lord blessed. The Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. Did you catch that? Did any of you think that Obed-Edom would be blessed? Anybody? I would have thought he'd be dead within a day. Two days, a week at most. It's there for three months. Nobody dies. Instead, it's just the opposite. They were all, he and all his household were blessed. Why? What what does this mean? What, What does this tell us about God, instead of Obed-Edom being cursed and everyone being struck dead, the Lord blessed he and all his household. This is the grace of God on full display. This is the goodness of God on full display. And this is where I want to focus our attention for our last time this weekend, the gracious God who, who blesses. The gracious God who blesses. Yes, we have this infinite God who creates. Yes, we have this holy God who judges. And we have the gracious God who blesses. And he is perfectly one. And as we work through the rest of this chapter, I want you to to discover three important lessons about God's grace. I want you to discover together with us three important lessons about God's grace. And the first one is this. God's grace is surprising. God's grace is surprising. On on the heels of what was a surprising display of God's holiness, a surprising display of God's justice, we get this even more surprising display of God's grace as he blessed Obed-Edom. And this is is so jarring and surprising. I remember the first time I, I had read through this chapter kind of all at once, and I had, I had heard the story of Uzzah touching the ark before, and I always kind of stopped there. And when I read the next verse, it, it stopped me in my tracks. I, I thought, no, that's a mistake. That's not what it says. I had to read it over several times that, that God blessed Obed-Edom. This is so jarring and surprising that, that you know this didn't happen by accident. This isn't just kind of some random thing thrown in there. This is, this is put in there intentionally by God. This is what happened intentionally by God's design to show you by a stark contrast to catch our attention. We think God is one way or another, but no, he is perfectly holy and perfectly gracious. 
We think touching the ark is no big deal. Wrong. We think God, uh, we think, um, let me say that over again. We, we think touching the ark is no big deal. That's wrong. We also think being around the ark is a bad idea, but that's also wrong. God is far more holy than we think, but God also loves. He also loves to surprise and lavish us with his goodness and his grace. He loves to pour out to overflowing goodness and grace. Grace, grace means uh, unmerited favor. God's grace is his unmerited favor, his undeserved kindness. It's, it's the kind and good things he does that is undeserved. It's not obligated. He, he's not constrained. You can't earn it. You can't demand it. It's freely given. It's not earned or deserved or, or obligated in any way. So true grace is always given freely. True grace is always given freely. That means that God can choose to give grace to whomever he pleases. He can give grace here or he's free to not give grace. That is what it means to be God and that is what it means to give grace. If, if someone has to give you grace, if someone is obligated to give you grace, it's no longer grace because now they have to do it. Grace is always free. It's always undeserved. And that means, in some sense, grace is always surprising. Grace is always surprising because you can't, you can't demand it. You can't, you can't predict where God's going to show grace because it's up to him. It's undeserved. You know, one way that you can tell that you're thinking wrongly about God and wrongly about grace is when you secretly think you can predict how God's grace will work. Uh, let me explain what I, what I mean by this. Imagine that you have two friends. Some of you are like, I wish I had two friends. I hope you have more. But imagine you had two friends, and one friend is generally, generally a good kid. Generally a good kid, respectful, obedient, stays out of trouble, and the other is... Um, Honestly, a pretty lousy friend. You're like, I don't know, I don't know why this person's my friend. Uh, always getting in trouble, disrespects all authority, is moody and mean, and gossips about you all the time. This other friend is loyal. This friend gossips about you. Which one would you be more inclined to invite to church with you? Which one would you guess would be more likely to believe in Jesus? Now, if you've been around church, you, you know you're supposed to say, well, you know, I mean, salvation's open for everybody. I mean, anybody could, could be saved. Anybody could believe. I, I think you all know that, but inside you're thinking, no, 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 for sure. The first friend is more likely to come to church, more likely to be, believe in Jesus. They're a little bit closer, right? Do, do you get what I'm saying? Anybody kind of agree with me secretly a little bit, right? You kind of think that way. Elijah, you want to add something? They do need Jesus more, except not. We all need Jesus more, don't we? We all need Jesus more. I, I read this article this one time where this pastor said, you know, you, you, know, you know when the church kid, and he, he, and he was describing like the ultimate church kid, like homeschooled, Awana, VBS church kid, right? I mean, no offense by that. The ultimate church kid, you know that he has gotten saved when he repents. Was it when his repentance is as heartfelt and deep as the heroin addict? 
We, we think, well, that person needs God more. No, no, no. We all need God more. Remember Jesus said, it's not the, the, the righteous, it's not the, it's not the healthy that need a doctor, but the sick. And his point wasn't, well, the Pharisees, you guys are actually more healthy. The point is that all of you are sick. All of you need grace. All of you need a savior. So, so you have these two friends. You've got these two friends. I think some of us are tempted to think, you know what? This friend will be more likely to receive Christ. And if you, if you think that way, if I think that way, we have fallen into the error of thinking that God gives grace to those who are good. We fall into the error of thinking that God loves those who are good. And the Bible actually says, God loves the ungodly. God loves the unlovable. Christ died, Romans 5, 6 says, Christ died for the ungodly. Christ died for the sinners. Christ died for his enemies. If only the good receive grace, then it's not grace. God is free to show grace to whomever he pleases, and he loves to surprise us and turn around our preconceived ideas. And so God's grace is surprising. That's the first thing I want you to see here. It's surprising that he blesses Obed-Edom's household. But secondly, God's grace gives blessing. We already saw that in verse 10 and 11, but God's grace gives blessing. Let me read verse 11 for us again. The ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite three months, and the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. And then, to add emphasis, verse 12 says it again and specifically spells out the reason. Why did God bless Obed-Edom? Look at verse 12. And it was told King David, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him. Why? Because, because of the ark of God, not in spite of it, because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. This, this is repeated twice. It's, his household is blessed. It says it twice for emphasis, and then it gives the explanation. It is because of the ark. And this happens in the very center of, uh, of this chapter, of chapter six. It happens in the center of this chapter to put emphasis. This happens in the climax and the plot twist of this story. It's the central point that God blesses. I think, I think everyone in, in Obed- Edom's household. I would have thought that everyone in the house would have died because of the ark, but instead God blessed Obed-Edom because of the ark. Not in spite of it, because of it. God's purpose, God's desire, God's intention is not to destroy his people through his presence. His purpose and his intention is to bless through his presence. His presence is one to bless and not destroy. The holy presence of God is a tremendous danger, and we saw that last night, but the, the gracious presence of God is also a tremendous blessing. It's both. How many of you guys have read the Chronicles of Narnia? Anybody? Lion, Witch, in the Wardrobe? You guys remember this scene. If you haven't, I'll explain it to you. You, you remember this scene where in that magical land of Narnia, there's these talking animals, and the children find out King Aslan is a lion. He's a lion, right? And understandably, they expressed some fear, and, and Lucy, the youngest, asked Mr. Beaver, then he isn't safe? Mr. Beaver answered, safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. 
He's the king, I tell you. And so it is with God. So it is with Christ. He's not safe. He's not domesticated. He's not a house cat. He is a lion, a lion of lions. Of course, he is not safe, but he is good. Friends, can you imagine if our God was infinitely powerful but was not good, how terrifying that would be. But instead, we have an all-powerful God who is good, who is gracious, who loves to loves to bless. He loves to bless. He loves to give and give and give and give. So just like you can't overestimate God's holiness, you cannot overestimate his grace. You can't, you can't imagine him to be more gracious than he actually is. He is far more gracious than we can think. And just like there are stars in the sky that you can't see unless the sky is at its darkest. In a similar way, there are aspects of God's grace that you can't understand unless it's on the backdrop of his holiness, of his terrifying justice. So David was scared to complete his mission of moving the ark to Jerusalem when Uzzah was struck dead, but God reassured him. God reassured David by blessing Obed-Edom and all his household. And so David rejoiced and he continued his mission to bring the ark into Jerusalem. And the parallel passage in 1 Chronicles 15, 15, it tells us that this time they, they carried the ark on poles. They didn't do it on a cart this time. And they, they went back to God's word and learned their lesson. They, they carried it on poles into Jerusalem. And now consider for a moment that King David, right? King David is a man after God's own heart. King David's a man after God's own heart. And even he underestimated God's holiness and he also underestimated God's grace. He underestimated both. And if he can do that, we can too. Friends, I want you to understand, God is far more holy than you can imagine. But God is also far more gracious than you could ever hope. He's absolutely both. Absolutely both. So God's grace is surprising. It gives blessing. And the last important lesson I want you to see this, this weekend with us is that God's grace requires praise. God's grace requires praise. We're going to see this reality played out in the rest of the chapter. And as we read through these verses, I want you to notice, I want you to pay special attention to how, to how the Bible talks about David's wife. David's wife is named Michal. David's wife is named Michal, and I want you to see how the Bible describes her. Starting in verse 13, look at what it says. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. And David danced before the Lord with all his might, and David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all his house, all the house of Israel, brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michal, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. And they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, the people, uh, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts and distributed among all the people, the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread, a portion of meat, and a cake of raisins to each one. Then all the people departed, each to his house. This is a celebration. Verse 20, and David returned to bless his household. But Michal, 
the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. And David said to Michal, It was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord. And I will celebrate before the Lord. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this, and I will be abased in your eyes. But by the female servants of whom you have spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. And Michal, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. So as they are bringing the ark of God into Jerusalem, David's doing the only the only appropriate thing. He is having a dance party. He is that's right. That's right, Susan. Just like that, just like that. I'm, I'm just kidding. I'm sorry to sorry to embarrass you. <laughs> David was doing some sort of dance, the the equivalent of uh, you know, 10th century BC Jewish flossing, you know, something. I don't know what he was doing. He was he was breaking it down and celebrating. He was celebrating. He's like, these kingly clothes are too heavy to dance in. He was wearing a linen ephod, which is kind of usually a priestly garment, not inappropriate by any sense, but it wasn't like the typical stately royal robes. He's dancing before the Lord with all his might. Some of you might know an an old song based on this verse where he says, essentially, I'll be even more undignified than this. Na, 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 hey. Some of the older people get that. That's, that, was, that was for you all. He danced before the Lord with all his might, and, and it wasn't inappropriate, but it was certainly, certainly abnormal for a king. And so when, when Michal saw this, his wife, she despised David in, in her heart. Now, did you notice how every time Michal is named, it, it refers to her as what? As who? What did it say? You guys say it together. The daughter of Saul. Now, Saul had just died. Saul was the king before who hated David, right? David was married to, to, to Saul's daughter. Wow, family dynamic. Interesting. She's the daughter of Saul. How strange is that? She's the wife of David. Saul is dead. Why doesn't the Bible call her the wife of David? I mean, my, my wife's name is Abijah. It's a lovely name, by the way. It means Yahweh is my father in Hebrew. Anyway. My wife's name is Abijah. Can you imagine me introducing you all to, hey, I'd like you to meet Abijah, daughter of Edward. <laughs> Every time, like, you know, I see you at dinner, I see you at lunch, I'm like, hey, hey, this is Abijah, daughter of Edward. <laughs> yeah. That'd be odd. It's so strange. Is this just like a weird, awkward thing in the Bible? No, this was on purpose. The, the point is, the point is that McCall was identified more with Saul than with David. The author of 2 Samuel is associating her with Saul rather than David. Remember Saul? What, what do you remember about Saul? Tell me. Give me some answers. Saul was bad. What else? That's right. That's uh, Josiah. <laughs> uh, God told him to like, something with all, the, uh, like, all his animals because he uh, kept them alive. Uh, I love you, buddy. Too long. All right. Sarah. <laughs> I love you, buddy. Sarah. Okay, tell me about, so, so he's bad, he's disobedient, he's prideful. What else? And, and young lady, what's your name? He was the king, good. What else? Caleb? He was always jealous. He was always jealous. How did he look? 
correct. That's correct. <laughs> wasn't, the, wasn't the person I'd expect to answer that one in that way? So, yes, and just how you said he was what? Tall. tall. He was tall and he was, he was handsome. <laughs> I've got to recover here. I'm, I'm, I'm off my game, guys. It's too soon, too soon. Um, so Saul, Saul looked the part of the king outwardly. I'm sorry. <clears throat> Saul, Saul looked the part of the king outwardly. He was tall. He was handsome. <laughs> okay, all right. Get it together. This is, I'm, I'm cracking up here. He looked the part of the king outwardly, but his, his heart was not for the Lord, right? So McCall, McCall rebuked David. She rebuked David for not displaying the dignity that she thought a king should have. David, you are not being dignified like a king should be. And the implication, you're not, you're not being dignified the way my father would have. She's the daughter of Saul, the daughter of the tall, handsome king. And you, David, have, have shown yourself to be undignified, contemptible. She is more concerned with the external than the internal, like her father Saul. And what's interesting here is that David answers back strongly. He reminds her that the Lord chose David himself over Saul. Now, you need to understand what's going on here. I mean, this is, this is not a picture of everyday marital conflict. Like, you know, she says, I can't believe you wore that out in public. Really? A linen ephod? And he's like, well, you know, let me insult your father. Like, that's, this is not the way marriage conflict should work. I mean, I know none of you are married, but just tuck that away for later. Don't do that. That's not, that's not good. That's not, like, don't be like David here. That's not the point here. There is something else going on here. The Lord had chosen David as king. So when McCall was attacking David, she was really attacking the Lord. She was despising the Lord. And, and you see that because she was concerned about external appearances and she didn't care that the ark was coming to Jerusalem. She didn't care about the presence of the Lord. David says, this is finally happening. God, his, his ark is coming in. We're going to worship him here in Jerusalem. Everyone's having a party. Everyone's having, having this dance party. And he's giving out raisin cakes. That must have been something really good at that point, I guess. And, and, and they're just celebrating. And McCall's just looking out, huh. Because she didn't love the Lord. She didn't value God's grace. She didn't value God's presence. And so it says, that McCall, the daughter of Saul, not the wife of David, the daughter of Saul, she was childless to the day she died. She was barren. That was the ultimate disgrace for a woman in ancient Israel. This was a divine judgment on McCall because she did not rejoice before the Lord. This was divine judgment on McCall, but also a judgment on Saul so that Saul's lineage, Saul's descendants would not have any part in David's kingly rule. This was God's judgment. David danced before the Lord with all his might because of God's presence to bless. And so McCall's contempt for David's dancing was a contempt for God's grace, a contempt for God's presence. She ought to have joined in the celebration, but she had no interest in God. And so when you take a, a step back and you think about this, so, so in chapter 6, verses 1 to 11, you've got Uzzah who underestimates God's holiness and he is struck dead. He's judged. The second half, you have McCall, who has a disdain for God's grace, and she's also judged. 
Do you see what's going on here? In both halves of this chapter, you have somebody who misses the point about God, who underestimates God, who underestimates his holiness and is judged, who underestimates God's grace and is judged. You know, one pastor named Dale Ralph Davis, he points out that in this chapter, this, this, this chapter serves as a warning. It's a warning, it's a warning to the casual worshiper. A casual worshiper who does not take seriously God's holiness. The casual worshiper who has no fear of God, who is so familiar with God that familiarity has led to contempt. This is a warning to the casual worshiper who does not take seriously God's holiness. And this chapter serves as a warning to the cold worshiper, to the cold worshiper who is unmoved by God's grace. When you gather to worship God, do you approach him casually like it's no big deal? Because you forget his holiness? This is a warning. Likewise, when you gather with the people of God, are you cold? Because you, you don't see the goodness of God. You don't see the grace of God. There's no rejoicing. There's no joy in your heart. You come cold and you kind of give him the token lip service because you have no love from God. says, no, I'm not, I'm not okay with the casual worshiper. I'm not okay with the cold worshiper. You must love me. You must worship me in spirit and truth. You must know me as both holy and gracious. You must approach me with fear and with joy because that is who our God is. He is holy and he is gracious. These two halves of this chapter mirror each other and right in the middle, in the climax of this, this story, this is the way Hebrew works. Oftentimes the main point is not at the end. The main point is right in the middle of a story and right in the middle it says, God blessed Obed-Edom. God blessed because of the ark. God blessed because of his presence. God is a God who is holy. God is a God who is gracious and God is a God who, who, who blesses. He blesses. How amazing is that? He's eager to bless. So it's, it's no coincidence that these two ideas, God's holiness and his grace, are placed together, so close together, in stark contrast. This is how God is described again and again throughout the Old Testament. Whenever God um, reveals his glory, he often highlights these themes, his holiness and his grace. For example, I want you to turn to one other passage Exodus 34. This is one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible. Exodus 34. Exodus is the second book of the Bible all the way near the beginning, right after Genesis. Exodus 34. And, and in the book of Exodus, Moses says to God, God, show me your glory. God, show me your glory. I want to see your glory. I want to know what it means that you are the glorious God. And it's fascinating because God essentially says, no man can see me and live. You can't see me. I'm going to let you see kind of the afterglow of my glory. I'm going to pass by and you'll just see kind of the fading afterglow of my glory, but I will proclaim my name. I will make all my goodness pass before you and proclaim my name. And so Exodus 34 verses six and seven is what Moses records. I mean, can you just imagine if you were there in, in that cave with Moses and you got to see to see the brightness of God's glory pass by. Maybe you remember when Moses comes down the mountain, because of just the, it wasn't even the full glory of God, it was just the afterglow, but the afterglow of God's glory was enough that when he came down the mountain, his face was still shining. And it was so, it was shining so brightly that the people of Israel were terrified and said, Moses, you put a veil over your face, we can't bear to look at you. And all he saw was the afterglow. What, what would you give to have been in the cave with Moses and just see that? 
And yet the fascinating and amazing thing is Moses doesn't tell us a thing about what he saw. He doesn't tell us what he saw. He tells us what he heard. Because when he was there, God proclaimed his name. doesn't just mean like he just pronounced his name. It means that he was describing the fullness of who he is. He was revealing the very character and heart of who he is. And so in Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7, Moses doesn't tell us what he saw. He tells us what he heard. And he heard the very voice of God, not somebody else describing God, but God describing himself. And this is what God says. Listen. Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but, but who will by no means clear the guilty? visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. I just want to throw verse 8 in. Once Moses hears this revelation of God, Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. The only proper response to the glory of God, to the name of God, to to the character of God, the only proper response is to bow down and worship, to worship. Verses 6 and 7, this is how God describes himself. Not how others describe him. This is how he describes himself. And this self-description of God is echoed throughout the Old Testament. These words here are picked up in the Psalms. They're picked up in the book of Jonah. They're picked up all over the place because this is God's self-revelation. And and the, the Old Testament authors say again and again, yes, this is our God. Yes, this is the Lord. We want to know him as he is. You see here, God kind of describes these two sides. He is perfectly one. But, but I, I think we can, we can kind of describe these two sides of God, as it were. On the one hand, he says, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, abounding, abounding, overflowing in loving kindness, steadfast love. He forgives. He forgives iniquity and transgression and sin to a thousand generations. This is our God, so gracious, unthinkably gracious. But on the other hand, He's just, he's holy, he's righteous. He cannot let the guilty go unpunished. For him to let the guilty, the sinner, the, the wicked to go unpunished would be, would be wrong. It would go against his own character because of his holiness. You know, sometimes we, we pit these two kind of sides of God against each other as if he can only be one or the other. I, I like to think of God as gracious. I like to think of God as holy or, or the world kind of thinks even in those ways. It's much easier to to pick one or the other. He's a cold cosmic judge weighing your good deeds against your bad deeds and he just gives you a cold verdict at the end. Pharisees love that kind of portrayal of God. And many atheists hate that portrayal of God, rightly so. Or instead of thinking of him as the cold cosmic judge, many people like to think of him as the benevolent heavenly grandfather who just spoils his children. He turns a blind eye to anything wrong you do. And oftentimes, lukewarm, worldly, professing Christians like to think of God like this. And unbelievers comfort themselves with this portrayal of God. God's probably okay with me in the way I live my life. I'm I'm okay. But these views cheapen. They cheapen God's holiness. They cheapen His grace. God is neither of these caricatures. 
God is not one or the other. God is terrifyingly holy and he's radically, abundantly gracious. Overwhelmingly so. He pours out wrath on defiant rebels. He runs to embrace filthy prodigals. Our God is not divided. Our God is one and he is perfect. Our God is far more holy than you can imagine. He's far more gracious than you could ever hope. But if you want to understand how the grace of God and the holiness of God, how they work together, you you can't just stop in 2 Samuel 6 or Exodus 34. You can't just stop in the Old Testament You need to move past the Old Testament into the New. You need to look. You need to look upon Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, who is the exact image of God, the radiance of his glory. You need to understand Jesus Christ, who perfectly represents us, perfectly reveals to us, perfectly explains to us the heart of God the Father. In the Old Testament, God dwelt with Israel in the tabernacle through the ark. But in the New Testament, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. Jesus is the very presence of God. The the pinnacle, the apex, the highest point, the highest point of, of the glory of Jesus Christ is not found in His teachings, as wise as they are. It's not found in His miracles, as powerful as those are. The highest point of Jesus' work, the highest point of Jesus' glory is when He died on the cross and rose again. The cross upon which Jesus died, that is the blazing center of the glory of God. Because on the cross, God's holiness and his wrath against sin was poured out in full on Jesus. When Jesus died on the cross, he was absorbing the fullness of God's wrath against sin. Against your sin and against my sin. We deserve God's wrath. We deserve his judgment. And on the cross, Jesus absorbed all that wrath. He took the wrath of God upon himself. But also on the cross, Jesus died to reveal the glory of God because by by absorbing God's wrath, he allowed us to be forgiven. Our sin couldn't be swept under the rug. God is a righteous judge. How can he forgive and yet not clear the guilty? How can he show mercy and yet be righteous? And it's that riddle of the Old Testament is answered in the cross that God upheld his justice by punishing sin, but he also forgave by having that punishment paid for by Jesus. Do you you understand that Jesus died in our place? If you trust in Jesus, God's holiness is satisfied for you. You deserve God's wrath, but Jesus said, I will take your place. Will you trust in me? Will you give me your life? Give me your sin. Give me your failure. Will you trust in me? I will take his wrath and give you my righteousness. The holiness and grace of God on full display at the cross. Remember how Last night we talked about the cherubim and they were a a big keep out sign. Because of your sin, you can't come in. This curtain hung in the temple showing that you couldn't come in. Do you remember what happened when Jesus died on the cross? Anybody remember what happened to that curtain? What happened? The curtain ripped. What do you think that means? The keep out sign is torn up. Come in. All are welcome. All can come into the presence of God Almighty because Jesus has paid 
the way. It's as if the, the cherubim with their flaming swords, their swords found their, found their satisfaction in the sacrifice of Christ for us. Yes, God is far more holy than you think. He's far more gracious than you can imagine. And those truths come together perfectly in the cross. And of course, because Jesus is God, he rose three days later. He is sitting at God's right hand and he offers himself, not just salvation to you, he offers himself to you. He is yours if you will trust in him. He is yours if you will trust in him. These are the, the basics of Christianity. God is holy, God is gracious, and yet we so easily distort it and fall away from this. Friend, if if this is new to you or maybe striking you new and in a different way, I just want to beg you that you would talk to one of your leaders. Talk to one of the leaders and, 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 and ask them to, to help you understand this more. I want you to, to walk away from this weekend. If you already know Christ, that you would walk away loving him even more, fearing him even more, and also being drawn to his grace even more. And if you don't know him, I, I, my prayer is that you would, that you would. You'd be humbled before his holiness, but also humbled before his grace. Friends, I, I, I so appreciate being able to be with you all, and, and I, I hope that you can walk away from this weekend not being sensitive to little things and insensitive to the greatest things. I want you to be sensitive to the greatest things, the things of God, his infinite power, his holiness, and his grace. Let's pray.